The word of God says, of course, therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. And we have had the opportunity in this conference to be blessed and informed and challenged. My wife and I have been able to be in all the meetings together, and so we have reviewed and rehearsed what God has said to us, and to listen to the stories of people God has used in such a magnificent way, and be reminded we can't be those people. I can't be a Brainerd and into the woods. And I love the life of David Brainerd, the inspiration it brought to so many. But I have the same God He has. And he's my God. And I want to be yielded to him. But we've been exposed to so many wonderful things. And I want you to know that we are responsible. And now we're accountable to God. The thing that's missing in ministry is application. Mr. Spurgeon said, you don't have a sermon until you have an application. He said so many things. I'm tempted to think when I get to heaven, I'm going to say, did you really say this? But, uh, but I've been a student of Spurgeon for over 50 years. But I don't know if he meant that the preacher makes the application, the listener makes the application, or the Holy Spirit makes the application, or all three. But the application is made, and it has to be made. So what you're hearing, what you've heard, just like listening to the lecture from Dr. Beeky on a family altar, my wife and I started that in our marriage almost 55 years ago. And we determined to read through the Bible with our children. They'd hear every word of it. And she established the discipline in her life to be up and have everything ready so we could do that every morning, a half hour before we had to leave the home. And so many of the things he said were so refreshing to us. And uh, <laughs> we're responsible. Uh, do something about it. We've heard so much about prayer. I appreciate what I just heard. But we have to do something about it. There's no doubt about it. You think sometimes about meetings and who comes to a meeting and what could be done through the lives of those who come to the meeting. But nothing really will change unless those applications are made. Nothing. Nothing. And the truth of the matter is, I've been a pastor for over half a century and love doing what I'm doing, leading the people, training the people, praying with the people, praying for the people. But I understand that we have to act upon what we know is right and do it and obey, obey the Lord. No doubt about it. That's for me. That's for everyone. There's just so much I'd like to say.
before I try to speak. For example, I believe that for this particular moment in human history, that God has gifted and carved out a life uh, through Stephen Lee that makes an application to things that are so necessary in a medium that we, we wouldn't think of. And now to hear him earlier this morning talk about some of the things that we can anticipate might happen, thinking ahead, the truth of the matter is he's a man for this moment. And we need to pray for him, pray that God will guide him and help him. Now, all of us have a way of doing things. And after a while, we get set in our way of doing things. Um, I've preached to our people a certain way. I have people who help me keep up with all of that. And I've given them every book in the Old Testament except, except six and every book in the New Testament except one. So that's my way of doing it, just taking one and plowing through and taking and plowing through. But I'm not going to do that today because I've been asked to do something else. I want you to pray for me. I want to be a blessing and encouragement to you. And I want you to know that God can. No matter what you're thinking or who you're thinking about, I want you to know that God can. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ever ask or think. God can do it. And let him do it through you. Give him your life. And it will stagger you sometime just to to witness yourself the work of the Holy Spirit through your life. You'll see that. Let us pray together just for a moment. Our fathers, we come to thee. We thank thee, Lord, that we can lean heavily upon thee. And we ask thee, gracious God, to guide us, help us, strengthen us, bring to mind the things that need to be spoken. And keep from my mind and lips the things that need not be spoken. May all the glory be given to thee. In Christ Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. I'd like for you to take the word of God and turn with me, please. To the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> this is where Stephen asked me to start. If it's not exactly where the Lord would want me to be, then I want God to deal with Stephen. <laughs> because this is not what I'm going to preach on. But I'm going to read something here just to come to one verse. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. We begin with verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God. 
It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see, your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And that's what I wanted to get to. <laughs> that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's a hard thing dealing with the devil. It's a hard thing dealing with the world, the world system. But it's a terribly difficult thing dealing with the flesh. Because we have something in us that's a monster that wants to be recognized, applauded, looked at, approved. As a matter of fact, we want to rival God. It's in us. And God chooses to work a certain way so that no flesh could glory in his presence. And he works in a way to bring us, to bring us to a place where we recognize also that it's the Lord. It is the Lord. Let me read something else to you. If you'll turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians, just for a moment. To the 12th chapter. 2 Corinthians, of course, is the most personal thing Paul penned. <clears throat> and there's so much of this that takes us into the heart of Paul and reveals to us so much of his life given to God. And the 12th chapter beginning with the verse 1, it says, It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory, yet of myself 
I will not glory, but in my infirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. One more verse, chapter 13, verse 4. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. In other words, we conclude with that verse that the most wonderful thing God accomplished for us, the greatest thing the Lord Jesus did in his ministry on earth was accomplished in weakness. As he yielded himself, he gave himself into the hands of sinners to do with them, them to do with him as they pleased. He offered no resistance. He came to die. And the world would look at that and think it's the most ridiculous thing imaginable. But yet the greatest thing God ever accomplished, he accomplished when Christ gave himself in weakness into the hands of men to be crucified. For our example, think of that just for a moment. He teaches us in this same passage of scripture that it is something we can do to have the power of Christ rest upon us. How would you like that? To have the power of Christ abide upon you, to rest upon you. And then notice, as God leads him in this, he talks about being perfect in weakness. That weakness becomes a way of life. Perfect in weakness. And being brought to the place in your life where you're absolutely, totally aware of how desperately you need God. Perfect in weakness. I don't know much about this particular movement that's represented by this. I just love Stephen and what he's doing and agreed to come and preach. And it's been thrilling for me to hear what I've heard. And I've enjoyed it. It's been good for my soul. But do we, do we recognize God's trying to bring us to the place where we can be perfect in weakness? God's trying to bring us to the place 
where we can have his power to rest upon us. And notice the use of this word at the closing part of verse 10. For when I am weak, then, when I'm weak, then am I strong. We fight everything we can fight to keep from being weak. But God says when he brings us to this particular kind of weakness, at that moment of weakness, when we cry out to him and recognize how desperately we need him, that's when we can find, that's when we can find <laughs> his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Now, everybody has their own journey. I thought you had to be a decathlon athlete to serve the Lord. I truly did. And I sought to be as fit and capable and able as a human being could be. I'm standing here now, the recipient of a reconstructed spine with 25 years of spine surgeries and a titanium rods from top to bottom and a metal neck and a foot that won't work and part of a leg that won't work. <laughs> and God has brought me to the point where I recognize it's a gift from him. It's a gift. And he's done that. And I'm happy in Jesus. I truly am. And I thank God for it. I'm a blessed person. I was born in Selma, Alabama to Preston Sexton and Ruby Sexton. Preston was 22 years older than Ruby. Uh, Preston had a rough life. But he's my father. Uh, Preston's father was killed in a logging accident when he was a 10-year-old boy. And then six months later, his granddaddy died in the same kind of accident. He was shipped off to be with an aunt and uncle and they were making home brew and he was fetching a bottle of it and it exploded and the bottle went into his left eye. He already had infantile paralysis and limped all his life. But the doctor to try to help him when he had the glass going to that left eye removed his eye, all of it. And from age 11, for the rest of his life, he wore an artificial eye. I used to watch him take it out and wash it. And... Uh, it was, a, it was an ugly mess of a thing. It sure was. So there he was, limping around with one eye, married to my mother. And I was the first child born to their marriage, my brother 13 months younger, and then two sisters. My father was a professional gambler. He didn't do it as a hobby. He did it to make a living. And that's what he did. He gambled about everything and anything everywhere. For example... When I was a boy, I grew up, and before I was in the third grade, I had lived in 19 different places. Finally, my mother said one day to my dad, these kids are going to have to go to school because I'd gone to school at two different schools for six weeks in the first grade and not gone at all in the second grade. We were on our way to school one morning, and my brother and I were in the back seat of the car. My dad said, I can't give my address to anybody because I don't want the police to know where I live. So you boys just have to stay home this year. And we, we thought that was the greatest thing anybody had ever done for a kid. 
So we came home excited and shouting and told my mother we were going to be with her all year. We weren't going to school. And we didn't go. Not one day did we go in the second grade. We moved to another place by the time it's old enough to be in the third grade. And my mother walked us to school that morning and came into the office of Mr. Howard, the school principal at Sam Houston School in Maryville, Tennessee, where we had landed. And she said, these are my children and they want to go to school. And he said, well, what grade are they in? And she said, they're in the third grade. Now, my brother and I, standing beside one another, had started school together in the first grade. We hadn't gone but six weeks and didn't go at all in the second grade. And my mother just dared to tell the principal that we were third graders. And so we went into Miss Burns' class. Tommy went with me. He stayed for about two weeks. He didn't make it. God bless him. I put him back in Miss Watson's class. If you knew my brother, you'd see why he didn't make it. But anyway, <laughs> they put him back in there. But Miss Burns became one of the greatest influences in my life. A third grade teacher. I thought she smelled wonderfully. That doesn't mean a lot to you, but when you grow up around beer and cigarettes and stale smells of all evil things... When somebody comes and takes time around you to help you and guide you, you smell her and you think, oh, she's fresh and beautiful. She's the woman who found out I was a little dyslexic. And she took the time to keep me after school with permission from my mother to tell me how dyslexic people could get through in life. It was a great learning period of time. Miss Burns made such an impression on my life. She did so many special things. I'd never been on a ball team of any kind. We had a third grade basketball team called the Green Dragons. And she let me be the captain. Can you imagine? I remember one game we won, one to nothing. <laughs> this is a basketball game. You, you'd, have thought, you'd have thought we had won a championship somewhere in a national competition. That's how much she made over it. I'm almost weeping to think about it when I'm telling you. I remember the uniform. We had green basketball trunks and a white top. And by the way, that game was won because somebody fouled me and I made the foul shot. <laughs> and the game ended one to nothing. What a championship game. Powerful. I will tell you this, that Miss Burns impacted my life in such a wonderful way that we were 700 miles away when she died, much later in life. And my wife and I came from the New York City area to attend her funeral just to say thank you to any of her family and let them know what one woman could do to change the life of a third grade child. And she did it. She did it. When I was about 12 years old, my mother said, we were going to have a family meeting. My father wasn't home much because he was always traveling, gambling. But she brought us all in. We sat on a sofa. And on that sofa, I sat on the end. My brother sat to my left. My sister, oldest sister, who's younger than me, 
and my baby sister sat there. And my mother and father stood in front of us and they told us that they were no longer going to live together. I don't know if you ever lived through a divorce as a child. I don't know if you ever thought it could happen to everybody in the world but you. But I still remember the pain of that day. When my father, who didn't weep, was weeping and my mother was weeping. And they were telling us that they were never going to live together another day. I felt so sorry for my dad. I said to my mother, can I go with him? And when I said that, of course, my brother Tommy said, I'm going with him too. So the two boys went out the door. We had packed a few clothes. We went out the door, crossed the screened-in porch, got in his car, left my mother and two sisters there crying on the sofa in the living room. My father was weeping still. We drove up the big hill on 114 South Houston Street out on the Broadway and down 411 Highway to a road called Calderwood Highway. He turned left and started down Calderwood Highway, which was about an hour's journey. And he turned around and looked at both of us, Tommy and me, and said, I can't take care of you. I just can't take care of you. We didn't know what was coming next. But he made a U-turn with the car, got back on the highway, drove us right back home. And when we got back there, my mother and two sisters were still on the sofa crying. We got out of the car and came across the screened-in porch into the living room, embraced my mother, and said, we're going to be with you. Things are not always the way you plan for them to be. When I was nearly 14 years old, somebody said to me, Clarence, are you a Christian? I thought everybody in America was a Christian. I truly did. I mean, I had a Bible. I went to Sunday school. I'd gone to church. I sang in a youth choir. But the youth worker who was asking me this question one evening after youth choir practice knew from my answers that I really wasn't a Christian. And he said, I want to talk to you. And Dr. Harbin wants to talk to you. Dr. J. William Harbin was my pastor at the First Baptist Church in Maryville, Tennessee, where I was attending Sunday school. Ken Shepard, who was the coach of the high school right across the street, was a Sunday school teacher, and I admired him. I was in his class. And so they walked me down the hallway, and Dr. Harbin took the Bible and explained to me that I was lost, that my sin had to be paid for, that hell would be my home if I didn't get my sin forgiven, that Jesus Christ had paid my sin debt, and I could pray and ask Him to forgive my sin and by faith trust Him as my Savior. Now, nobody knew, I don't think anyone knew, all the wonderful things I'd be thinking from time to time when we were playing as kids, but then all the horrible things that I'd seen in my home. My heart was already broken. And they explained how I could truly be saved. Now you, you may not believe this, but I'm the one that knows. And they asked me if I'd pray and ask God to forgive my sin and by faith trust Christ as my Savior. I didn't know how to pray that prayer. I knew now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I knew God is great. God is good. And we thank him for the food. As a matter of fact, my mother was the kind of woman 
who had us pray before every meal, even though there was Morgan David wine and cigarettes everywhere, beer in the refrigerator, we prayed before meals and we prayed at bedtime. We couldn't go to sleep at night unless we'd prayed, had our prayers. But I didn't know how to pray that prayer. And those kind men patiently worked with me and helped me to understand what I could ask God to do. And I asked God to forgive my sin and by faith I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Bells didn't ring, lights didn't flash, I didn't feel funny all over, I just took God at His word. And I walked from home to church and from church back home. So my mother was waiting for me this on a Wednesday evening. And she was disturbed. She was disturbed because I was late. When I got home, I couldn't wait to get home. We lived in an apartment. Of course, my father was gone. On the middle apartment, you come up on the porch and there was one door you could take. We'd go into my bedroom. And I thought maybe I could slip right in here with my, my mother noticing too much of what was going on. But sure enough, when I opened the door, there she stood. And she was angry. She was angry because I was late and it made her anxious. And I said to her, first thing out of my mouth, Mother, I got saved tonight. I asked God to forgive my sin. I trusted Jesus as my Savior. And she said, that's good. Just quickly, short, that's good. She was still angry. She turned around and walked back into the room. And then she turned back around. This is so meaningful to me. And she reached out her arms. She was only about five feet tall, weighed 100 pounds. And she said, no, honey, that's very good. She's in heaven now. But I think when I see her, after I see the Lord Jesus, she'll say to me, honey, that's very good. That's very good. I want you to, I want you to think what it means to lead somebody to Jesus Christ and see a life changed and plant some Christian in a home that's been torn to smithereens. And now, mother, brother, and sisters, and sisters' families have an opportunity to have their lives made all over again. My, my sister's daughter's on the mission field. She and her husband loving the Lord. My other sisters say, my brother's a pastor and a church planter. God's been so good to me. So good to me. God began to deal with my heart about preaching the Word of God. I didn't know anything about a preacher. I thought, I thought preachers' kids became preachers. You know, doctors' kids became doctors, and lawyers' kids became lawyers. And what was a gambler's kid going to become? I hope not a gambler. But God began to deal with me about preaching His Word, explain to people the way of salvation. And I'm telling I think too much of this, but I yielded my life to the Lord when I was 17. And I said to God when I was 17 years old, anything you want me to do, anywhere you want me to do it, that's what I want. I want you to have all the choices in my life. And as best I knew how, I meant it. I failed the Lord many times, but I, I meant that. And God began to guide my life. He called me to preach. I answered that call. I knew the Lord pressed upon my heart to preach His Word. 
And I had been a high school football player. And of course, the older I get, the better I was. And you'll get that in a moment. And I had been so good that people wanted to hear me speak. And I was preaching around our area. And one day, a pulpit committee came to hear me. I just couldn't believe it that somebody wanted me to be their pastor. And my wife and I were so thrilled. And the Greenback Memorial Baptist Church in Greenback, Tennessee, called me to be their pastor. And what a wonderful, joyous time we had. I pastored that church for three and a half years. Doesn't sound like long, but it's longer than anybody else had ever been there. A little country village of 350 people. We learned that we ought to go to every door and speak to everybody in that little community about knowing Jesus Christ. Then I went to the Calvary Baptist Church in the North City and pastored a church there for a period of time. While I finished college, University of Tennessee, and off to seminary, but we got a big disruption trying to go to seminary because that's when I was challenged about the inerrancy of Scripture in the seminary where I was going in Fort Worth, Texas. And we made a decision, Evelyn and I, that we would depend on God and that we would leave the denomination we were a part of and become independent people. I didn't know anything about it, but that's exactly what God led me to do. And that led me on a different journey. But it made me so dependent upon the Lord. And I believe God saw us through. We left everything we'd built up, (laughs) tried to accumulate, and just cast all our lot with the Lord. And God has proven himself again and again. Stephen wants me to tell something, and I'm very reluctant about telling it, but I'll tell you. I've been preaching now since I was 18. I'm 73 now. I'm going to give you another opportunity to hear that. Because what you should do, if you're courteous and kind people, is when I say I'm 73, you should go, because you don't believe it. How many of you understand what I just said? All right, I'm going to try you again. Uh, I started preaching when I was 18 years old. I've been all of my adult life in the ministry. And now I'm 73 years old. You do have a little sense of humor. I thought this crowd never had any kind of sense of humor. But anyway, anyway, I got a phone call one day in my office and said, uh, this is President Trump's brother, Robert. And his wife, they said, we watch every service of your church. By the way, we pray for your sister who's ill. And on they went with detailed things. They've been listening Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And they said, we need to talk to you about Jesus. (laughs) I thought it was a joke. Who gets a phone call from the president of the United States brother? But it wasn't a joke. And they wanted to talk about the Lord, knowing the Lord. Robert had gotten sick and God had opened his heart. Robert was sort of a historian and a partner with Donald in their business enterprises. And we developed a great conversation and relationship, a friendship. He got sick. They called me. 
So Robert's in the hospital. Maybe you remember when President Trump went to the hospital in New York City to see his brother. His brother and I were on the phone when the president came in the room. Robert said, I want to tell you, I believe, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. I want you to know I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone. He said, I also want to tell you that I agree with you if we don't have revival in this nation. We don't have any hope. I want my brother, I want my brother to be president, but more than that, I want to see a revival in America. Isn't that marvelous? And so we prayed together. I read to him scripture, tried to comfort and help him. He went out of the hospital, back in the hospital. We had conversations. And then Anne Marie called me and said, Robert's gone with the Lord. And uh, he said, she said to me, would you pray for us? I prayed with him. And lo and behold, two or three days later, she said, will you have Robert's funeral? They won't let us have it in New York State. Only 10 people can come. And the president wants you to come to Washington and in the White House in the East Room, have Robert's funeral. Would you do that? I said, I certainly would. And my wife and I went to Washington, D.C., went into the East Room. There were about 350 people there. Every chair was filled. The president sat about five feet in front of me with his family, everybody in his family. You know his family, of course, and you've heard about his family. They were all there. The vice president was there, and then the famous friends of the president were there. And somebody said to me, what would you do? <laughs> I told them how I gave Robert the gospel. I explained how Jesus Christ came to this earth and became a man without ceasing to be God. I explained the matter of sin and that we could be forgiven for sin because Christ Jesus had paid our sin debt. I went through the entire gospel presentation as I would anywhere in the world. And then when it was all over, Mark Meadows said to me, I want to tell you, Dr. Sexton, did you ever think that you'd be able to stand in the White House of the United States of America and give a clear gospel presentation to everybody on the president's staff and to all the people in his family, even some who profess to be Jews. Would you ever think you were going to do that? I said, no, sir. I never gave it the first thought. And then he came back and he and his associate said to me and my wife, I just want to say this to you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm telling you that story not because I tell it, because I don't. Because Steve had asked me to tell you what God could do with somebody, just anybody, who'd yield their life to him. Now I've got 10 minutes left. Isn't that correct? 10 minutes. Now I want to do what I want to do. I want you to turn to the gospel according to Luke, please. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 11 and verse 1. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples, 
And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he, that is the Lord Jesus, said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend? And shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you, that is his father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? If you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, I want you to mark this expression. It's in the sixth verse. Would you please? I have nothing. Let's say it together. I have nothing. The reason we don't have all God wants to give us is because we think we've got enough already. Jesus said in this story, I have nothing. The disciples came to Jesus and said, teach us to pray. The fact of the matter is, this is not a prayer lesson about how to pray. This is not a kindergarten lesson about how to get your prayers answered. This is a lesson about being motivated to pray. And we learn from this lesson that Jesus taught them that prayer begins with God and the greatness of God. Our vision of God determines everything else in life. And the higher and clearer that vision is, the clearer everything in life becomes. But it begins with God. Notice he says, when they're praying, he says, this is how you pray. Say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, just just rushing in, speaking quickly to God. Think of the greatness of God. Think to whom you're speaking. You've been able to go in to see and speak to the Lord 
Not on your merit, not on your rewards, but on the merit of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the only way we can get in. But now that we've gotten in on the merit of Christ, think to whom you're speaking. This is God. This is Almighty God who spoke the world into existence with whom nothing is impossible. And it begins from there to teach us that prayer begins with God. And he teaches us that we, we don't ask anything for ourselves. We ask things for the Lord until we ask things then for ourselves. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And when you get to the end of this lesson, in verse 11, we find out that when you're praying, if you're really motivated to pray and pray the way God wants us to pray, we wind up asking God for God. Let me read it again. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Prayer is not trying to get God to come away to our, around to our way of thinking. Prayer is God's work getting us to come around to His way of thinking and seeking the Lord and the Lord's will. But right in the heart of it, Jesus tells us this. I'm going to give you this story to motivate you. Here's the story. He said unto them in verse 5, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. Clear, isn't it? For a friend of mine, in his journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, trouble me not, the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. And we've known the story, the Eastern home here, the Middle Eastern home where everybody's going to be disturbed if he gets up. No, I can't do that. And then the friend answers back, I say unto you, the Lord says, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity. And most of the time we land there and stay there and say, just keep knocking, keep asking, keep knocking and keep asking, keep knocking and keep asking. But that's not it at all. It's why. Did he keep knocking and keep asking? Because he said, I have nothing. Nothing. There's nothing I have. Here's a man in need. And I have nothing. And the Lord is facing his disciples. And they're hearing. And he's saying to them, are you, are you ready 
to be motivated to pray? Then are you ready to be extended where you have nothing? Zero? Not? Nothing? You see, we still think we've got something in our pocket we can pull out and get it done. As a matter of fact, we think we'll learn enough in a meeting like this that we can go back and make a few changes. The truth of the matter is, until God allows us to be brought to nothing, we will never get what God has for us. Nothing. Would you write this down? The power of nothing is what God is bringing this world to. The power of nothing is what God is bringing this nation to. The power of nothing is what God will reduce our lives to. And then He will use nothing to have us cry out. He will use nothing to have us cry out from our hearts for God and God alone. How much, how much does the Lord need to continue working in your life and mine until we're brought to our nothing to see our need, our extremity, that God and God alone is the only one who can do what we need. You won't be able to educate it, legislate it. As a matter of fact, we're sick. We're sick people. Did you hear me? We're sick people. We think if we can change the political landscape, we can change America. That's how sick we are. We ought to look at the political landscape now and think, dear God, another set of political leaders is not going to be the answer we need. Only God who brings us to nothing. When I was 12 years old, my father came to see my mother and said, I want to take my oldest son with me just for a day. They were already divorced. She said, I'll ask him. There had been a lot of trouble I said, yes, Mom, I'll go with him. And I remember when the day came. I was waiting anxiously, looking out the door across the porch. When he pulled his car up, I ran quickly. I said, hey, Daddy. Got in the car with him. And we drove from 114 South Houston Street up the hill to Broadway and down the highway the Calderwood Highway, and he turned left, came to the dead end, turned left to go up the winding place they call the Dragon now into the mountains of North Carolina toward Fontana. We got to one of those beautiful overlooks. Now remember, he only had one eye, and so when he talked to you, he had to turn his body to see you. He turned the car off and turned his body to me. 
He said, son, I brought you all this way to tell you something. I've been to the doctor. The doctor says I've got less than a year to live. And the doctor was right. It was the means of his salvation I found out later. And he said, I want to ask you something. I'd like for you to promise me. A promise. I've given all of my life, he said, to the devil. All of it. All of my life. He'd been in prison, in Moundsville Prison in West Virginia, until he was 27 years old. He was a gambler and known to be a crooked person in lots of things. And he said, I've given all of my life to the devil. I'm sitting there as his 12-year-old son. And he said, will you promise me you will not make the same mistake with your life that I have made with mine? And I said, yes, Daddy, I promise you. I found out later preaching in the church that he had trusted Christ as Savior and the pastor told me the whole experience. My mother told me he'd gotten religion. That's the only way they knew how to talk about it. But when I see him, when I see him, and I'll see him again, when I see him, I want to do my best to say to him. I want to do my best to say to him, Daddy, I kept that promise. And I want to tell you, there are many boys and girls There are many boys out there that need your witness. God could use it to see a life changed or a home changed. And there's no telling what God could do with those young people if you'll just get everything started by telling them about Jesus. Thank you for listening. Thank you for letting me speak. God bless you.